The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ebody and X, and this is The Candid Frame. One of the things that I love about being interested in photography today is that I'm able to discover photographers that I might never had heard from 20 years ago. I mean, if you weren't jacked into the fine art world or working at an ad agency in New York, you would turn to photo magazines for inspiration. But the problem there was that they were largely aimed at selling you gear, and the photographers seemed to be the same names over and over again. That's, that's not to say that these photographers weren't and aren't great, but it seemed that there were a lot of other photographers out there that we weren't hearing from. Now with the age of the internet, you and I have access to photographers from all over the world. We're privy to images and points of view that don't come from the usual suspects and provide a fresh view of what it means to be a photographer. Yvonne Venegas has been producing her life's work in Mexico, first in Tijuana and now in Mexico City. She focuses on issues of class and culture in the growing middle class of Mexico, where issues of identity, sexuality, and class are being shaped by both traditional Mexican culture and popular cultural influences not only from the United States, but also all over the world. Her work is another wonderful example of why it's so great to be a photographer today. Yvonne, welcome, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure and an honor to, to have you. You've been on my radar for several years now, and we finally got around to saying, okay, let's have her on the show now. Um, <laughs> great. First off, congratulations well, on getting the Guggenheim. That must have been exciting. Thank you. That is very exciting. <laughs> yes, I'm very happy. I'm very honored. It's, it's quite an amazing, amazing thing. <laughs> well, what's interesting about your story is that your father was uh was a wedding photographer and, right. <laughs> and there, there are a lot of people who grow up with a parent doing something some type of work but they usually don't embrace it they sort of have an aversion for it especially when the when the parent is a photographer because they're kind of sick of the presence of the camera especially when it's directed <laughs> towards them um yeah. but to, to tell me about um your first, you know, your, your initial awarenesses of your father as a photographer and the role of a, of a camera in your life. Well, um, that was when I was very little. I, I, I mean, I basically grew up in a photo studio and it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was like a, a relationship of joy, you know, like, like a joyous relationship to my father's career. It was a little bit uh, complex because um, it was pretty involved with how the so like like the the social class was being constructed. It was very young Tijuana, you know. It, it was like you know in the seventies when people were barely sort of starting to create a community. And my father became kind of a figure for them that was a contemporary, mm -hmm. and and the idea and he kind of became like a signature of belonging in the group, and and that was. 
it was interesting. It was, uh, it was like, for me, the, the relationship to the camera was just sort of watching him work. Sometimes he would bring us to weddings, which was really weird because I, I always kind of felt like an outsider. You know, it was never really a wedding of somebody we knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and my dad had a really, he, he, as a social photographer, he had a very a kind of a charming persona to the people outside. But then at home, it was kind of a different story. So that created a sort of relationship with image for me that was, it, it was to the outside and then to the inside. It was kind of like two sides to it. So I, I feel that that did sort of establish my relationship to photography now. And it it was, it's complex it was it wasn't you know it, i think that that's the reason why i'm 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 in it mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, i had something to kind of i have my own version of things to say and i found that photography was a natural tool to use it was almost like i couldn't communicate with my father verbally he was a very um uh how would you say he was quite an, an intense man and and kind of difficult in in the family structure and so for me, photography was a way to kind of, in a way, rebel, you mm-hmm. know, in a way, say the things that I felt. And, and obviously, it's sort of become my career. So it's not I'm kind of out of that place now. But uh, since very, I mean, I started using the camera when I was 16, it was kind of a natural inheritance, you would say in, in life. And um, I kind of just started shooting first. It was just I was very social. I was a very sociable young woman. And and the camera was sort of a natural extension for me to kind of just skip class and take the, you know, the the, the school pictures and stuff like that. And it was it, and it for me, it was quite fabulous. And for a year and a half or two years, it was like that. I just used the camera as another sort of way to kind of meet more people and talk to people and stuff like that. And then later I started to take classes in San Diego and that's when I became actually more like when I started taking classes, when I, when, when I actually decided that photography was going to be something important for me. You have an identical twin. I do. And, you know, issues of identity, no doubt come out, come out as a result of, of, of that relationship. Did you find that you embracing photography at a relatively early age was a way of sort of differentiating yourself between yourself and your sister? Actually, yes, I do feel that that was, um, it was quite a clear sort of break between before and after we both started doing our, our you know, kind of decided on something. My sister, uh, when, since we were like very young, my parents would put us in a lot of art classes and she was in music when she, she took piano lessons. We all did, but then she was the only one to stay on since we were nine years old. So she, she kind of knew that music was her thing from very early and then when we started, when I started to do photography and she started to compose songs, it, we became friends. Like before that, it's not like we were enemies, but it was not a fun, like a fun thing to be a twin. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like complicated and we were forced to be together and it was like kind of not, not a happy thing. And then once we started to do our own thing, we became, we, it was the best time, you know, it was like, we became really close and we, I, we kind of felt that we started to know each other for the first time. And, and it was just, it was, it was wonderful. And, and yes, to be called, we weren't called by our names before we were more called like cuatas or, you know, twins or twinnies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then later, after after once we became close to each other, it didn't really matter. 
it was like it was it was first kind of you were part of a of a thing and then later as we felt identified with something that we did it did feel like we kind of we belonged with each other before that it was just disturbing <laughs> well you, you've described it as 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 being compartmentalized is like good 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 and malo you know yeah. good, you know good and bad yeah. what, what, what was that about well i think that it's just ignorance you know like um i think it's part of uh, a, a part of parenthood and adulthood that now in time we've learned so much about you know and we're, we're such different parents from our own parents and as they were different from theirs but in, in my day, uh, you know, growing up in that time, twins were kind of understood that there was always one of them that was mean and one of those one of them that was good. It was like good and bad, mean and nice, and it was just an opposite. And as opposites, you know, it's true. I do believe that temperaments are different in twins, but obviously the way that people identified them was just the basic opposite, you know, good, mm -hmm. bad. So, so growing up with that uh, label, it, it, neither of it, any, any label that you grow up with, it sucks. So I had the good label and she had the bad label and that really just, you know, it didn't, it didn't save me to have the good label. <laughs> it was actually, I, think, I think it's even worse. You know what I mean? But this idea of, I think it's just sort of normal human behavior that you think that there's an opposite and therefore one is good and one is bad. But I mean, you see that Diane Arbus picture of the twins mm -hmm. and it's like, that's exactly what people think. You know what I mean? There's one that smiles and one that doesn't. And they do. It's true. It's like, it, it, obviously with time, now that people, that parents are different, I ask parents of twins, like, what's it like? You know, what are they like? Are they, are they considered, you know, what, how do you find them different? And she's like, it's really, I, I talked to a friend of mine in particular that, that has two-year-old two, uh, twins, identical twins, and they're inseparable. And she's like, the thing about these two is that they keep exchanging the roles. Like one day, one will do something really naughty and the other one will just laugh or follow. And then next day, they will just turn it around. It's like, you never know. You can't really pin it on anybody who's the good one, who's the mm -hmm. bad one, <laughs> which I think is great. I mean, it just makes it more natural. I mean, naturally, this is what happens that I, I think, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert. I've read a lot about it, but I just feel that. You know, it's like it's something more like an like one person would do with his own identity. It's like you sort of kind of adapt and you sort of just tr kind of exchange with people that you're with. Yeah, no, something like that. <laughs> it, it, it seems like uh, that that belief in that one good, one bad is is influenced by watching too many telenovelas. <laughs> well, any movies that you watch, you know, it's like any anything that you watch, even now, it's sort of that's the most basic understanding of of people. No, I mean, that's the way it's like you're, yeah. there's always a, a hero and the, the bad guy and there's a good, you know, it's kind of. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> did, did you observing your father at work and the way he seemed to adapt to the way he behaved in in your own home and how he how he uh, interacted with people in, in the community in which he was working sort of teach you or give you insight into how you negotiate people of a different class and of a slightly different culture? I do think um, somehow, I mean, I think that I have a lot of, 
I've taken a lot from my dad's work to, to how I negotiate with people. Um, there's a sort of a flattery involved in, in the sort of more commercial work. You know, the, the way you flatter people, the way you make them feel a certain way in order to get what you are there for. In my case, I never actually, you know, I don't get money from people that I'm photographing, which makes it a little bit different. And what I want to get is simply what I want to get. It, it's not really... I'm, I'm never thinking, I, I do, obviously there's a, a, I mean, I'm going to make a parenthesis. I do have a, a professional practice where I have to do this. No, people hire me to, to make portraits and I, and then, so I do have to kind of work around the ideals of what people are hiring me for. But then on the other side, when I'm doing my personal work, I, I do have like a, the, the negotiation is always like. I'm looking to get something and I'm looking for them to accept it without necessarily being completely, completely agreeing with the way I'm photographing them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I want them to let me do it and convince them to do it. And, and it's kind of a, I mean, in San Pedro in particular, because it's a, it's, I, I mean, I work with one family, I work with, you know, in the, in my past projects and this project is one community that I'm trying to convince basically yeah. <laughs> to let me photograph them and to have them be in my book. And that's like, a, I do, I have learned that there's certain complexities that I had never confronted before, which has to do with how people relate to each other and how people understand their own image, which is very intense in San Pedro in particular. And I do feel that I, I'm constantly trying to, I'm working to kind of get my way and, and, and do give them something, you know, but what I'm offering has more to do with putting them in a book, putting them in, in sort of in a, in a, in a part of photography, you know, make, you know, make them become a part of maybe art or photography, wherever I'm going to put them, it's basically going to be galleries, museums, where I usually show my work and the books are going to be part of collections and they're going to be, you know, it's like, I try to sell it that way. No, and, and that's like, uh, and, and I feel like I'm constantly, like in the beginning in San Pedro, I would carry a bag with my books and my, and, you know, and like prints. And it was just like, like a, any insurance salesman, <laughs> mm. you know, like trying to kind of convince and convince and just like, and I think it's part of the, it's part of the job. It's part of getting what you want, you know, out of people that are, that are normal and they're, that are kind of, they're not celebrities, you know, they're not people that are used to being photographed. I mean, I'm going to actually go back on that in San Pedro, they are used to being photographed, but I'm going to take them out of their community, out of the insular sort of, uh, sort of, I mean, the, the place where they, they usually see themselves and they're where, where they expose themselves. I'm going to actually make them go out of that. And that's like when I'm, you know, the, negotiating with people that are kind of um, used to uh, insular, I think, relates to my father's work. I mean, my father is photo photographed people, and he still does photographs people that are not necessarily, you know, they don't know how to be photographed. They, they don't necessarily. I mean, I think San Pedro, they probably know more than people that my dad photographs, but more and more, I think everybody's learned how to be photographed because of social media. But it's like this negotiation and trying to convince, I think, um, is it, that, that's where my two sides are reside because in the end I want to go for, I want to just be let, uh, uh, you know, like leave, I want to be left to photograph the way I want to photograph. And that's what, where I kind of can't really even say that this is going to be flattering. I can't promise anybody that this is going to be a flattering photograph because 
it's it's I do depend a bit on chance. And that's, you know, that's kind of, I think, the other side of my practice that in my dad's case was sort of the home sort of uh, persona. And I think that this two side or two sort of realities also has to do with growing up in the border. You know, there's there's a, a series of dualities in my life that I think are in my work constantly, like my dad's duality, my border duality, my twin duality. And it's just, I could go on. <laughs> it's just yeah. karma, I think. <laughs> but, but one of the interesting observations that you've made about your work and your, and your father's work was that you learned something from the images that he would discard, the images that he wouldn't put in an album or offer to his clients to, to sell. And that those discards were were some of the images that really intrigued you. And you've described what you try to pursue in your photography is you try to go for the um, something like between the the perfect moment and the mistake. That there's something in between those two extremes that that captivate you. Can you can you tell us a little more about that? Well. Um... I've always, I mean, you kind of, you really did your research. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that this idea of, I mean, I, I'll take you back to that studio moment. I mean, to me, that's really important. I, and, and I think all my projects go back to that sort of being a child in a photo studio where it wasn't about childhood. It was about sort of waiting, waiting for, you know, for, for somebody to take us home, waiting for, for somebody to, for, to, for my dad to finish taking the pictures. And it was like, you know, it was a kind of childhood that had to do with waiting for somebody to be photographed or waiting, you know, if we were driven home, we had to stop by and drop the film off without being told. It was more like, you know, it was more like about the photography. No, everything, everything was about the photography. And, and so my relationship with my father has to do with that. Like when he sat there with, you know, he put the prints, it used to be that you had to print everything. No, he, there was none of this, whatever, you know, everything we have now, but he, he'd make all the prints of the wedding. So that was like, you know, 500 prints in, in five by five inches. He kept the pack, put it on his belly, you know, like go one, one by one checking and sort of, it's not like, I don't know why exactly I've identified with that, with those images that disappear. But I think that it has it has to do with several things. One of them might be that I think that in my sort of in this sort of dual existence with my with with the reality that we were in, we were in an all girls school where all the clients of my dad were, you know, had their kids and we were living with these kids. We were kind of, you know, having a, a relationship. With, that's where our friendships lied, everything. But we weren't allowed to go to the parties. We were we always kind of kept a bit like outcasts, you know, like it was kind of like we were forced to be observers instead of participants. So I feel that this part of sort of being an outcast and seeing these images fall, it was kind of like I, I related to those images somehow. Like these are the images that are actually human. Mm. You know, these are the ones that are touchable, the ones that I can I can relate to. No, so so I think that sort of is where, kind of you know my my interest in that in those moments came from. Yeah. No, and and then I also always thought kind of like why is it that somebody can actually just construct this reality of joy about a wedding? No, it's like why is it that that you know I kept asking myself this question like what is this perfect image? What is this sort of 
I mean, and, and it kind of goes on, it kind of goes on to my, uh, you know, like uh, life as a young girl and as a, as an adult, it's kind of, I don't agree with this image. I don't agree with the idea of something being flawless. No, because it's, it's impossible. And, and I've been reading a lot about, you know, I've been reading a lot about vulnerability. I, I really got into Brené Brown, who talks a lot about it. And I, I did find it really fascinating that it's a question that we have in society, in the world currently. You know, it exists because we have this sort of uh, dual existence now with social media. Now, this is what happens. We have this this possibility of, of, of sort of telling the world that our life is perfect when, you know, it's it's kind of, it's never going to be that way. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. You did. Well, one of your uh, projects, one of your early projects was uh, The Most Beautiful Brides of Baja California. And in that, you're, you're covering very similar territory as your father did as a wedding photographer. Tell, tell us about the impetus for, for that and what what led you to want to go to, uh, you know, to Tijuana and and begin that that body of work yeah okay so um be, that was 2000 right before i you know i i was i did a project in 96 98 that had to do with my twin sister it had to do i was writing kind of diary in diary form about our relationship um i went back to the archive and i took out some work from it and then that was right before I moved to New York. And I did sort of, I, they, they published some of those images, uh, like a small portfolio in a magazine called Luna Cornea, which is specialized in photography. And, and it was a really great, really great for me because I love this magazine and it was really important while I was sort of starting in photography. And it was kind of, kind of my first schools, really, you know, close to the Mexican photo school because I, I basically studied in, in the U.S. And so... Once it came out in that magazine, uh, two gossip magazines from Mexico, because my sister was becoming a public a public figure by then, they took these images and they put them in the in in these gossip magazines, like you know Julieta, because there was a picture where her and I were kissing each other, and it was like Julieta Venegas is a gives a lesbian kiss, and there was a, a nude picture of her on, in a tub that then there was like Julieta, you know, poses naked. It was kind of like they were making her into this sort of alternative artist or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was a bit alternative. And so the, this confirmed, you know, with the magazine, like this girl is crazy, whatever. But it was kind of a breaking point for my relationship with my sister. It was a breaking point for my understanding of how intimacy can be expressed in photography. It was kind of, it was really important for me. So when I moved to New York, I began to sort of practice other ways of, of sort of, you know, like I, I, I had to look for it for a long time. It took me a few years. But as I went into ICP, I, I started studying with this photographer called Alan Frame, who became important to me because he started to, you know, he kind of made me see this possibility in a situation where you are a part of the situation and you can photograph intimacy without necessarily showing you know, talking about your feelings and talking about something that's actually intimate in your life. So um, as I, I did this practice, I began to come up with ideas of what to photograph. So I, this, I, I was 30 years old. I kind of got into, at, in 2000 actually, right when that project started, 
before I got into I got a, into a bit of a crisis, <laughs> emotional crisis. I, I was 30. I was I was I broke up with a with a boyfriend I had briefly in, in New York. My parents separated. My youngest one of my youngest sisters got pregnant. It was just like a crazy time where it was like I should have, you know, according to Catholic education, I should have been married already. I should probably have a few kids. And there was a series of things that were not really going, you know, the way, it, it, like I never actually questioned it before, but at that point I did. <laughs> and so I decided to start going to Tijuana to revisit the girls that I grew up with. You no, know, so, and, and, and that was, yeah, the beginning of 2000, my parents separated. So I started going to Tijuana at about the, the, the end of, um, nine, I think it was 99 I can't remember. It was like, it was in a, it was near New Year's. No, actually it was at the end of 2000. I actually went to Tijuana from New York and I started to photograph. And it was like, it was fascinating because it was like the first time that I, I saw girls that I hadn't seen for 15 years. Um, it was magic. It was, it was one of those things that documentary photography does sometimes that is just magic, how you think of an idea, you, you sort of start, move on it, and then things just start to happen. And it was, um, for me, that project was about, it brought a lot of things together because I was questioning, I was asking myself about femininity. I was asking myself about my, my father's sort of idea of, of femininity, sort of what was my role meant to be as a woman, as a, as an artist, as a, it was just like a, all these questions that I had that all just, and also I was, I was approaching women that could have been my father's clients. So it was like trying to interpret my father's work in the way that, you know, it goes back to that moment we spoke about in the photo studio. Yeah. So it was, um, it was, it was for me, it was the first project in this format where it was more documentary. It was more about the people. It was with the six by seven that I'm still working with now. And, and it was like, it was just going into people's houses and, and sort of, you know, talking to people and, and then them take leading me to other people and, and starting this in my own city with my friends was fascinating. At, at, in the beginning, I think I was a little bit sour about it. You know, like I, why, you know, I didn't, I'm not getting this this, the, why didn't I get to play this part, you know, in life, like be one of these women, be, you know, have a, have a business or have a husband or have, you know, things that were already set up. No, I did ask myself all these questions, but then as I, I, I did this for four years, by the end of the project, obviously my, it was, it was one of those re energy recycling <laughs> systems that mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, I, I just, became I became friends and I learned from these people and it was just really just a wonderful yeah. thing yeah because I've heard you describe the, the project that initially you went in there being very critical um yeah. of of that of the entire culture and it, it was not just a reflection of what was happening with them it was so much more about what was happening with you about yeah. as you said the expectations within the culture of what you should be doing especially in your 30s about having married and having kids and and you sort of struggling with that within yourself mm -hmm. um how how did the work sort of allow you to sort of come to terms with what you were choosing for your own life not just as a photographer but as a, as a woman well i think that i mean i think it i it, it healed something i mean i don't know how exactly? I mean, I was, 
my last, I, I, the first two years of the project, I was living in New York. And then the last two years, I moved back to Tijuana um, to finish the project. Because in New York, it happened that in the time that I was living there, it was the, the towers happened. That was September mm-hmm. 9-11. And, and then I was... Um, at that time, I was like, I don't, I didn't know what to do. It was, I was a bit depressed after the 9-11. It was kind of like a hard time in New York, like professionally, emotionally. I was just like a bit really lonely and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly I, I was like, the only thing I can think of, the only thing I can do is go back and finish the project. So I, I kind of just left New York, went to Tijuana. I lived with my mother at 34. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, or 32 I, actually I moved back for, at 32 and I lived there for a few years with her and and I, I kept working on this project and I was so depressed when I came back and I didn't I couldn't even see clearly but the project actually had a had taken on a life of its own so the project actually led me to kind of out of being depressed and doing things because I, I I won an award with it. I I you know I was I was show I showed it in the museum of of San Diego. I had a bunch of like it was just being moved moving around everywhere, and I was showing more than ever. And it was kind of like uh, it was it was really important to me, and that kind of took me out of the you know the the place that I was in after I left New York, and then it just kind of um, the the sort of what I learned from it is that it. It, it like the it was more like the people like I came close again I, I came close to friends that I had not seen forever and and we still we're still friends to this day that you know it became important for me to see how I I could learn from them and to understand my role my that my role was always different yeah. you know it's like it was that was just it was fine and it was fine to be different <laughs> it was fine to be a, a, a different kind of a person a different kind of a woman it was fine to just you know, have a different, have a different idea of how my emotional life is going to develop. Mm-hmm. No, and and it, it just it was just a I don't know it was just a beautiful lesson I think. <laughs> I hope that you're enjoying our conversation with Yvonne Venegas. It's conversations just like these that inspired the show 10 years ago and why I still love producing the show for you today. The Candor Frame is a unique thing. It's it's a special thing. Each week you get to hear in-depth conversations with photographers that are unlike anything you'll hear or read anywhere else. We get to sit down with a photographer for an hour to talk about not equipment and technique, but how each of them has managed to create a life that revolves around their passion for making photographs. As I mentioned in my introduction for this episode, magazines were once the means by which you could get into a photographer's head. But the problem there was that if you followed enough magazines for a period of time, you seemed always to hear from the same photographers over and over again. And it wasn't surprising to hear the same quotes and the same anecdotes. You don't get that here. With The Candid Frame, you get to sit in the presence of some incredible talent and get to hear them tell their stories in their own words, in a way that doesn't come off as formulaic or pedantic. These aren't interviews as much as they are conversations that we're creating just for you. And that's the reason why this Patreon effort is so important. This show has come to mean 
a lot, not only to me, but to thousands of photographers who listen from all over the world. It's not only a resource for information and inspiration, but it's a reminder as to why each of us wants to pick up a camera in the first place and pursue our passion. And the cool thing about contributing to the show is that you not only help to make the show better for yourself, but for photographers listening all over the world in Guatemala, Australia, Japan, Germany, Greece, and a bunch of other countries. You're becoming a part of something much bigger than just another podcast. Through Patreon, you can support the show with regular contributions of $2, $5, $10, $25 or more, or anything in between. Your donations of any amount are the means by which we will improve the show and bring you more great conversations with the world's best photographers. I know you've been thinking about doing it and intending to contribute, but don't wait any longer. Those few dollars that you can afford each month are going to make a huge difference with what we bring to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thanks. Well, two of your other projects, um, uh, it's um, Maria... Elvia, uh, De Hank, and Inedito, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. both of both are sort of two sides of the same coin. In which, in, mm-hmm. by that I mean that they're exploring issues of class and issues mm-hmm. of image. Uh, mm-hmm. One, you you were following uh, the the late wife of a, of a of a millionaire down in in Tijuana, and the other mm-hmm. one, you were documenting the world re- regarding a, a, a Mexican soap opera. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, and I'm wondering about that sort of fascination that you seem to have with class and image and how both of those projects allowed you to sort of document and explore those themes, but in very, very distinctive worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, the first came in Edito. I did that one, that project right after I finished the brides and it was exciting for me to be, it was a, it was an artist project. I got invited by the Televisa foundation to do it. And it was exciting for me because I had just, I had been, my sister, I, I as, as you know, um, I mean, my sister became sort of a, Pop, I guess she her first pop album was she she came out in two thousand four or two thousand five I can't remember, but when it came out, um, it was it it gave me a lot of uh, it gave me another crisis to deal with <laughs> <laughs> because um, people confused me all the time with my sister and she really exploded she was everywhere she was very famous she was on the Pepsi ads she was you know she was everywhere and it was a and my sister and I had a very intense conflict for some reason, and and right before this happened, or right after it happened. So the first year and a half of my sister's sort of explosion, we didn't speak to each other. So it was very difficult for me, and I had to learn a lot about people, about celebrity. I, I read a lot. I, you know, I, like I did a lot of research on it. Like I had to deal with it somehow. You no, know, like how to deal with people that thought that I was another person and, and was, you know, it was like, it was too intense. It was, it was hysterical. Mm. <laughs> so I kind of started to, you know, this project came at a perfect time because I had already dealt with it. I had already reconciliated with my sister, but I had 
thought of a lot of stuff. You know, I had thought a lot, a lot of stuff about what celebrity meant, how people had a necessity to, to idealize something or someone. And it was because with so so I started to go to these concerts. I started to photograph, you know, the rebelde uh, telenovela filming, and my participating in that world was it was fascinating. I mean, the concerts were were just fascinating. There were like so many. I mean, the the Madison Square Garden was full, was packed with people and people crying in the in the public, and it was like it was emotional. It was almost religious. No, so. I mean, to, for me to explore that world was just, was just luck. I mean, it was just Mauricio Mayer thinking about me to do this, and it, I. But I, it was it was really lucky because I really had something to say, no. And then once I finished that, I mean, I didn't exactly. It didn't have an actual closure because the the Televisa in the end didn't really agree the way I saw that Televisa, so. They didn't really publish the book, but so it kind of kept going. I kind of kept photographing as long as I, as I kept being invited by the producer to maybe make a album cover or stuff like that. So there's work. The work kind of went on for a bit longer. But then uh, when I started a graduate school, um, I kind of had an idea of a project that I was going to do. Uh, but it was logical that I had to do Maria Elvia. Not for me. Like I wanted to do a project where it w that was complex. It had different layers that had all these different worlds that became one. You know, there were animals, maybe landscape, people, parties. And it was just obvious that it was Maria Elvia that I was thinking about. I had met Maria Elvia long before. And I, I knew her since I was a child. But I had explored sort of this, this terrain that she built with Jorge Hank. Uh, during my bride series, uh, people would say, like, if you're going to photograph somebody that's, um, you know, somebody has the best party, you have to photograph Maria Elvia. She's got the best parties for kids. She's got the best parties for adults. She's, like, amazing. No? She was kind of like the celebrity of the women that I had photographed in Tijuana. So I actually went in and photographed while I was doing the brides, but I realized that the work that I did there didn't really work for Maria, for, for the bride series, it was she was a different. She was on a different level. She was a different person in a in a world that was. I mean, it was more like she had her. She they had created their own place where they were sort of. I don't know. They were a kind of royalty. No, so I I kind of thought that that project might have to wait. I didn't know exactly when I was going to be able to do it, but it was going to wait. So I put it on hold, but I kept the relationship, the, the relationship with her going. And so that, you know, kind of, I started the project officially in 2006, but I have worked from that place since 2002. And for me, it was like to approach sort of this world that was a creation it was it was a construction that was made by two different these two people Jorge Hank and Maria Elvia that included elements that had to do with masculinity and it, it included elements that had to do with the feminine and sort of the the care for the outer image and and I just thought that she was perfect I mean when I knew her when I was a child, she actually gave us etiquette lessons. <laughs> uh -huh. No, this was before she was married to Jorge Hank. And I, I thought that she was a perfect person to explore because she was so complex. I mean, she, she had this idea that you could educate girls in Tijuana and make them ha learn how to have etiquette. 
and travel the world and learn how to eat escargot, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. it was just like fascinating when I thought of all these things and how she was now and I saw her parties and she was so careful and how she produced this image for the, for, for her, for the people who came. I, I loved it. I, I just found it fascinating. So it, it, as I, you know, to start to do the project was obviously the most intense negotiation that I had had and to, up to then to have a, a negotiation with a lot of people with, which were my friends in childhood was easy, but to have a negotiation with one person that had a very clear idea of her image and had even a political background in the family was, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. No, it was kind of, you had to, I, there was an idea outside of the, the space of the, their space was 60 acres. So in there, people had a very sort of revealed sort of a kind, how, how do I explain it? Like a kind of reverence for the people who, you know, for the people that were the bosses, mm-hmm. the boss and the la señora, no? El, el patrón y su señora, basically, that's what they call them. And then outside, they had a very tarnished image. It was like Jorge Hank was almost like a devil, you know? <laughs> it was like, it was, it was, it, it, in this, in, and again, I felt that this duality was perfect for me. Yeah. Not to try to make my own version of things, not to flatter the people inside and not to please the people outside. It was going to have to be my version of things. And that's what the book became. No, it, it was it was important for me to work while I was going to graduate school because my peers and my teachers were important. You know, it was very important to have these dialogues where my main advisor was a sculptor called Jennifer Pastor, who was essential for me to understand space, to understand my relationship with people. It was it was quite fascinating, and it was to be able to see the project for more than just the pictures. No, that was it was it was really wonderful. Yeah. No, you know one of the things that's really interesting about um, your work is that uh, if there can be. Uh, a sort of common trope in documentary photography is in, is in its subject matter, which often seem to be like disadvantaged people, people of color, mm-hmm. uh, people of a, a quote unquote lower lower class, and less and it seems less prevalent for people of uh, upper middle class to be the subject of photography, largely because they are much more self conscious of image and mm-hmm. and have a desire to control more of how they're represented. And, mm-hmm. you know, I take a look at your work. I think it's it's wonderful insight, not into just uh, middle and upper class within Mexico and, 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 and like specifically in Tijuana, but anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes of the work of like Tina Barney, who explored similar themes and, and, and ideas. And I'm wondering how how sensitive do you have to be to how these people may want to perceive, be, be perceived, especially in photographs, mm-hmm. are you, when you're out there doing your work and sharing your work either in an exhibit or in, in the form of a book? Mm-hmm. I used to be really worried about that. I mean, in the beginning, I was really kind of, oh, even the show in San Diego was like, oh, my God, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? Because I, 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 had a, I had the ghost of social photography living on my back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, like you had to kind of, you, you, the, the, the thing that people have to be pleased somehow was, was a weight on me. And I think that that's a constant negotiation. You, you touched on a point that's really important because that's what I'm negotiating all the time without actually mentioning it. 
You know what I mean? It's like a, people are are kind of, especially, you know, the project that I'm doing now is quite, that question arises constantly. It's like, how are you, what kind, I don't know if you know the work of Daniela Rossell. No. Which photographed the upper class, but she made a very critical stance on it. And 30% of her book was photographed in San Pedro. So I, I kind of, betwe- I'm, I'm in between explaining to people that I'm not Daniela Rossell a lot of the time. And another part of the time, I'm also, you know, because Daniela Rossell, what she did was a mockery. She, she actually made fun of the upper class and the women and femininity. And she kind of really, it was quite intense. And the response was intense also. So you know, a lot of the time, I think one of the biggest fears that people in the middle, upper middle class have is being laughed at, is actually being excluded from the group because they're being mocked. No, I mean, this is, this is, I think that in, in, in larger or smaller levels, this is what mainly the, the, like the core of what happens. No, so I, I, my, my constant sort of, um, what I insist on and that it's, very true is that I have a, a a genuine interest in people and I respect them and I am interested in beauty as well. I don't, I don't really care to make people look bad. Even if I don't make them look the way they're used to seeing themselves, I will never make them look ugly. You know, I'm not looking as, as I, as, as you know, I'm not looking to find a moment where it's the opposite of perfect. I'm, I'm trying to find the moment that has to do with it, it's it's still beautiful, but it's somehow unpredictable. And it talks about vulnerability because people are not necessarily prepared for the camera. They're not necessarily posing for the camera. And I think that's a word that people tend to kind of respond to. No, it could be they could translate it into into burla, as we say in Spanish, which is, you know, mock, or uh, how would you call it? Um, you know, m- making fun or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But um, it, it's like, I think that I insist that the translation depends on each person, and I can't really control that. <laughs> no, but in the end, it's like, if people agree to be part of my project, or they agree to be in my work, it's because they are aware that there is something further than their own, like their current, you know, what the current moment that we're living mm. No, And, and that I think is kind of, it sells with some people, it doesn't sell with others, but as long as there's, I'm photographing a community of 150,000 people, I'm pretty sure I can make a book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things you experience as a result of your sister's Julieta's celebrity is the fact, as you've mentioned, that you get mistaken for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and as a photographer, it probably is, um, even though it can be uh, quite the pain in the ass, um, <laughs> I, I'm sure that also it provides you a sort of a, a, a unique platform from which to observe the power of image, the power of celebrity, the power of the, of the, of the photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell me about how that, having your unique perspective uh, from that has informed you in terms of how you see the photograph, not only you as the photographer, but you as the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very um, good question. <laughs> um, I feel that it, 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 it's just, 
it's funny. It's just it's life, isn't it? I guess it's some kind of a karma thing. But I mean, growing up watching a photographer work, and then being looked at as part of the of the photograph has made my photography be what it is. No, I mean, I I kind of this thing about my experience with my twin sister has become somehow a tool that I that I tend to kind of use without even knowing sometimes. No, but um, like, for example, in Inedito, in the project of the of the band, when I went with the band around tour, we went to, you know, I, I went with them. They, there was a public waiting. I, I went and photographed the lines of people sort of waiting to get in the concert. And, and, and that was the first time that I experienced this power. <laughs> no, it's like I, I kind of stood there and I was just taking pictures. And then suddenly one person recognized me and then another person recognized me. And then suddenly I had like a hundred people looking at me, sort of looking excited, you know? And I, and I was like, oh my God, okay, what am I going to do? So first I, I took a picture of that. And then I started to, people started to ask me, oh, can I take a picture? Can I take a picture with you? And they started kind of come one after the other, like very excitedly to do this. And I said, I have to take control of the situation. So I said, okay, everybody, hold on. Now, the people who have uniforms come to this corner. And so they all kind of moved. Like, just they seem hypnotized. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just felt like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So everybody kind of moved to that corner. I took a picture. And then I, I put them back in the line. And I just took a few pictures. And then I, I mean, no, they, they, I, I let people take a few pictures. And then I just kind of had to go. Because otherwise I would be there for like two hours getting my picture taken. So that, but that moment was thrilling. You know, just to realize that there was this part where people almost lost control of themselves was fascinating. I mean, obviously it's, it can be a double-sided sort of tool. But that was like the that was the most I ever experienced it like that. Obviously, once I started doing when I'm photographing or when I'm shooting with upper middle class people, it's different. It's a different level, but it's still there somehow, even with the people that you least expected. No, so it's something that um, I think has made my work about the image. It, it, it's not just the images. So and and I feel that somehow I, I start to feel that photography is not going to do it completely. Like I'm going to have to move on to other media. I'm going to have to, I am beginning to, because I feel that there's a three dimensionality to the experience that I'm having that I can't really explain in just pictures. Um, this, the, uh, the Hes, I don't know if you're familiar with my book, Hestus, or the series Hestus, which is black and white, sees photography, the portraiture. It's basically about portraiture, but I, I make sort of a circle around portraiture. It's not just me taking portraits. It's not just other people taking pictures, but it's sort of the idea of where portraits can be done, um, who makes portraits, and how portraits are made. And it's just like this circle around it that I find interesting and exciting and this is something that I've learned from my experience with people no and it's and also my my experience with my in my sort of my my dad's studio Mm. well my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that one photographer be and why oh my god (laughs) (laughs) um 
before we went to the Guggenheim sort of the reunion, I did a bit of research on all the photographers, but I haven't really read enough about them. And I really like Drew Donovan's work, but I, I'll talk about her friend, Elaine Stockey, who is a photographer that I think is in LA now, but she also studied in Yale. And I, I discovered her because I was a judge in this contest called Tierney from the Tierney Foundation. And she had gotten an award in the New York sort of version of it because I was in the Mexico version of it. And this was quite a few years back. Um, and I, I, I love her work. It's like a, a mix of performance and social, it's sort of the social documentary that is strange and surreal. And I think that uh, sometimes reality is more surreal than we think it, it might be. I mean, sometimes we think that we have to construct things in order for them to be surreal enough. But what Elaine does is that she gets, I mean, this is, I'm talking about an older project. Um, her newer project is a bit stranger and I, and I, and I find it fascinating, but I don't think I can, you know, like uh, translate it quite as well as I know the, the previous work, but she did a work where she looked for people on ads and she befriended sort of uh, maybe lower class African-Americans and their sort of friends. And she sort of made dates to photograph and they just did whatever they wanted. And, and I think that what she sort of her what what it comes to is that it talks about the camera and how the camera um, sort of transforms any situation and it transforms it sometimes it transforms it into a performance in a in a higher or lower level it, I mean in a in a more intense or a, le, a more subtle level I think that everybody somehow is aware of the it's sort of familiar with the camera and we perform for it. No, and more and more we become a culture of performance for the camera. And I'm interested in this point because I, I find this to be something that I'm that I'm exploring a lot in in San Pedro currently and how people sort of, you know, we, we have a real everybody has a relationship to the camera. And I just find that uh, interesting to kind of be sort of become aware of it through somebody's work. Wow. Well, thank you so much for making time for us this morning. We really we really do appreciate it. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I, and I love talking to you. <laughs> Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Red FCU for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution to the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and the candid frame website. I'd like to thank all the people who have recently contributed to our effort, which include JD Ramsey, John Marcus, Chris Bonney, Wassam of Nazareth, Steve Aldred, Sandra Achberger, Robert Goldstein, Chris Lockhart, and Wallenville Photography. Thank you so much for your support. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, 
And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.